This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Jerry Falwell Jr. has resigned as president of Liberty University. The news came after Reuters reported that a friend and business partner of the couple had sex with Becky Falwell while Jerry Falwell Jr. watched. Falwell Jr. himself submitted his resignation only to reverse course twice. Bubble Jr. was already on an indefinite leave of absence after he posted a picture on Instagram of him posing with his arm around a woman at a party with their zippers down and midsections exposed. As we recently discussed in episode 225, that's just two weeks ago. Falwell's public statement and financial dealings have drawn public criticism for years. But at least from an outsider's perspective, Liberty University's board has stayed largely silent. The one exception being longtime PR executive Mark DeMoss, who in 2016 advised Falwell Jr. not to endorse anyone for president. Although Falwell Jr. told DeMoss he agreed, he later backed Trump and Liberty's executive committee then ousted DeMoss from the executive committee chair and DeMoss subsequently resigned. The free press, a powerful tool for higher education accountability, has done a remarkable job exposing President Falwell's ostensible improprieties to the public. But lost in the dialogue on Liberty University has been the obvious and important question, where is the board of trustees? Wrote Michael Poliakoff for Forbes last year. And we wanted to discuss the role of Christian boards in holding leaders accountable and what can make it challenging for them to do their jobs well. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right. So, Ted... As I just said, we just talked about Falwell two weeks ago on the show. It was not very long ago at all, and here we are. We have another Falwell story again, and this one is pretty salacious and crazy. How are you reacting to all of this? You know, deep sadness, as it often is when there's tremendous moral failure on the part of ministerial leader. You know, I think I've mentioned before on this podcast that I had it not a crisis of faith in God per se, but definitely a crisis of faith in our movement and in the church. Several years ago when I went through an unbroken month of hearing about dealing with moral failure, ministry leaders and church leaders, that was a really hard time where every day just coming into the office for a month being like, maybe today will be the day that I don't hear about a ministry leader you know, having to step down or doing something that would that they should step down for. It went on for a month and it was a very difficult time. Working through that kind of period, I'm able to you know have it not necessarily you know, rock my confidence in the church against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. But it is just this deep sadness knowing that a, a story like this, truly, uh, you know, uh, it is going to make it harder. It is not just going to make it harder for people to follow Jesus. Well, it's not, it is endangering people's, you know, eternal souls because it just makes it harder to believe when people, when leaders fall like this. You know, we had a lot of kind of work to deal with. You know, there's a there's a lot of going back and forth. A lot of our team was up kind of all hours. We're recording this on on Tuesday, and so Monday night staff was up a lot. And I, I got it. I'm very very grateful 
to our team that didn't just rush out with the first first draft of the story. I said, oh, let's let's make sure we know what's what's actually going on. And so we were one of the few outlets that that did not pre-rush the story. You know, there's there's kind of a, a little bit of a news rush. But for me, it's just kind of that that heartache of like this is gonna this is this is hurting people. How about you, Morgan? One of the most eyebrow raising things about this entire thing has been that Jerry Falwell Jr. actually ended up forwarding some pictures of his wife that were inappropriate to people in the executive committee. That I believe were meant for this business partner that we alluded to or named at the beginning of the show. Yeah, it's. Disappointing, I think, on one hand, when a leader does something in secret, but it's been secret the whole time. And it's just like a different level of infuriating when other people were in on the secret and didn't do anything. Yeah, I'm just, I think that that's where most of like my indignation, I guess, comes from is, I don't know, I guess many maybe want to join a board because it can like add to your professional pedigree or so forth or give you access to particular people in elite circles. But I really see people on the board as having to get some of those things, but in exchange for holding powerful people accountable and occasionally and make them mad or do things that are really hard. I've just been really, honestly, felt let down by the board the entire time that I've seen Fallwell Jr. just act in very boorish slash immoral slash wrong ways during this time. I think I mentioned last time, you know, we've had folks from Liberty write for us that are professors there or otherwise on staff. And some of them have amazing, really poignant things to say about the gospel and what Christian conviction looks like that the board seemingly, from an outsider's perspective, did not feel any obligation to do right by them and to do right by larger, you know, by this Christian community at large, just like very angry. So I don't know. I pretty much (laughs) blame them a lot for enabling someone and by Again, from at least from this outsider's perspective, their perceived inaction kind of allowing this person, Fallwell Jr., to kind of just continue to push the envelope with what he could get away with. That's how I see it from the outside, at least. I know in today's podcast, we're going to talk about governance more and, you know, maybe some of the tools that boards do behind the scenes to try to work with leaders and even the ways that they may rationalize their own inaction. And I'm looking forward to that conversation. So, Ted, maybe if you want to tell us who our guest is today, who will talk about some of that. We got a great guest today. It's uh, Bob Andringa. Bob Andringa is the managing partner of the Andringa Group and specializes in in governance and in the relationship between boards and chief executives. He's worked with more than 500 nonprofit groups and, and ministries, and has written several books on board governance, including the Nonprofit Board Answer Book and Good Governance for Nonprofits. And in fact. He has worked with Christianity Today's own board, restructuring that and helping us several years ago rethink governance here at Christianity Today. So, Bob, thank you for coming on Quick to Listen. You're very welcome. Bob, I'm wondering if you can kind of just tell us a little bit about, I don't know if you're going to give the 30-second version of like, what is the role of a board at a Christian ministry? And how does that differ from a secular business or nonprofit board? Well, first, a nonprofit does differ in many ways from a for-profit company that has a board. I always see a red flag when a ministry is depending on a lawyer who works mainly with the for-profit sector or with a CPA. So it's a world that, that needs to be understood with its own uniquenesses. Now, in simple terms, governance 
is what the board does. The law requires a board. It could be as small as three. I've worked with a board with 65. I've reported to a board of 55. Totally dysfunctional. The average board is about 17. The average board size in Christian higher education is around 21. So the trend is to get smaller to be more effective. So governance is what the board does, and it is led by a board chair elected by the board. They're the leader of the board. They are the leader of governance. They have one direct report, one agent. However many people are hired by the ministry, the board typically relates only to the one. We'll call it the CEO. So management is what the staff do, and their job is to fulfill the mission and the goals within the belief system and other parameters that the board documents as a policy. So the CEO runs the organization within the parameters that the board sets. So in cases that go bad, usually the governance process has been negligent. Where does that most often come into play? Is it more an area of neglecting the governance side or trying to be managers? Both, Ted. Most board members don't have a lot of experience in the nonprofit sector. And when you hire a businessman to come on who doesn't see the difference, they're used to dealing with management issues. So they often ask questions, ask for reports, that are really about management to the neglect of doing well the role of governance, which you might envision flying at 10,000 feet. They hopefully together can see what God is doing in the world, not just this ministry. They can look forward. They can look backward at 10,000 feet. But the risk is that they themselves want to dip down and be on the ground, be in the trenches. Staff, unfortunately, help that. Staff who serve committees, they write reports. So what are they going to write about? They're going to say, gee, what are my biggest problems? And they're going to ask the board to deal with those. So both board and staff complicate and confuse the two roles Clarifying the roles and dozens and dozens of surveys that I've done, most board members say, clarify for me, what is the role of the board? What is the role of the committee I serve on? I see the CEO sort of leading meetings. What is the role of our board chair? What is the role of committees? So clarifying roles is, is very, very important. And I've often heard that described as you're responsible for kind of bottom line finances. Is this organization going to be financially viable without getting too deep into the weeds of all the details of how that money is being spent? Uh, And then also mission and vision stuff. Is that a fair summary or is there something at a nonprofit that's just a little different there? Part of the role of the board is to clarify the mission and then prevent by writing parameters around what staff can do, prevent mission drift. CEOs always have big ideas or a big donor comes along and said, you know, my concern is this. I know you, Mr. or Miss CEO. I'm willing to put in a quarter of a million dollars if you can find a way to do this. Well, 
it's hard for CEOs to turn down that kind of money. So they say, well, I think we could find a way to do that. So they create another program and then another program. And pretty soon, the mission that the board wants them to stick with is it's off the tracks. That is one problem, mission drift. Now, legally, the buck stops with a board. The CEO is an employee of a corporation, a nonprofit corporation. And the nonprofit corporation, legally, is managed by a board of directors. The financial sustainability and viability is a very important part of the board's role. What they too often get, Ted, is they get a 12-page spreadsheet of detail that only the CFO and one or two others understand. Everyone else pretends they understand it. But boards need different kinds of information. They like trends. They like comparisons. They like to know where we were five years ago compared to today. And very few boards get that level of digestible, understandable information, particularly with finances. Bob, I'm really curious when it comes to organizational dysfunction. If you were a board member, and I'm sure you've been a board member, so maybe you can speak to this, and you were kind of trying to get a sense of how folks at the C-suite level were relating to each other and getting along, and if there was dysfunction among them slash the rest of the staff, what type of questions would you be asking, and how would you suss that out? A major board role is to monitor the organization without getting too deep into personalities and so forth. But what comes to mind, Morgan, is I believe in uh, best Christian workplaces, those kind of surveys that allow the board to see, well, how, does our, how do our employees view us? Our Christian commitment, our consistency, do they have trust in governance? Do they have trust in the CEO? So I like that. You guys probably remember when Bill Hybels thought everything was going just great at Willow Creek, and then he did the best Christian workplaces. He says, oh my gosh, (laughs) we're in the pits. One of the good things he did is he focused on that for a few years, and then, of course, he had other issues as well. Evaluating the CEO is a primary function of the board. The board hires, compensates, nurtures, gives direction to, and monitors. So question I always have when these kind of things hit the fan is how often did the board evaluate, truly evaluate their CEO? One of the policies, CT has a board policies manual, one of my favorite strategies for a board or tools is to say to the CEO, if you ever are aware of anything that, if made public, would hurt our mission and our brand, you are obligated to let, and you fill in the blank, the chair, the executive committee know immediately, and if not, it could lead to suspension or termination. I mean, you have to give the CEO a warning that whatever you're doing, if it's going to hurt us, we need to know. Then there could be a whistleblower policy. You're saying to the, to the staff in a big organization, here's our policy. The IRS asked for it. We have one. If you see things that are hurting, in your opinion, 
our functioning as a Christ-centered ministry. Here's how you go about informing us. I would look at a board, any any board of a ministry of over, you know, a couple million dollars, I would ask, why aren't you a member of ECFA, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability? They have standards that you are obligating yourself to follow, including governance standards. I would have a policy that says every three, four, five years, we do a 360. We interview or we survey CEOs, peers, the leaders of the community that you're in, your direct reports, maybe all of the faculty. We do that periodically. So there's a lot of strategies, six or eight, that a board should be holding their CEO accountable to. On that question of, of accountability, you know, I, I'm aware of a lot of different ministries where it's the executive who has a lot of influence in the makeup of that board. And, you know, they're looking for different things when they're kind of thinking about who would be good board members. And, you know, a lot of boards have, I think most boards have some sort of committee for, you know, discussing who could be good board members. But in a lot of different Christian cultures, and maybe this is just nonprofit culture, there's a lot of deference to a chief executive who is, you know, thinking about that ministry every day, who in a lot of cases is charged with fundraising, a lot of cases is charged with kind of being someone who's making connections. Ministry leaders, you know, they're often thinking, you know, who are, who's a board member who could be a significant donor to this ministry, who can kind of be, be passionate about this ministry. But it does seem like that creates a, a kind of situation where you would have an executive putting people on a board who are not necessarily going to be strong watchdog minds. I don't know of any chief of any ministry executive who's who's going out looking for people who's like, ooh, here's someone who'll really give me a hard time. Are you aware of ways in which boards can strengthen? I don't know. Do they need skepticism? What what is it the boards need to do to kind of strengthen that? I guess strengthen their backbone uh, in this regard. I'm guessing that. The several ministry boards that have run into moral and ethical issues with their CEO, I'm guessing that they lean far too much on their CEO to recommend board members. Who's the CEO going to recommend? They're going to recommend friends. So when it comes down to crunch time, those friends have more loyalty to the CEO than they do to the mission of the whole organization. Sadly, I hope every board would have a governance committee or a board development committee, whatever it's called, to first get agreement from the board on a profile of where we want, what we want to be in a few years. Every board member should meet these three criteria. One of them might be that I've served on another nonprofit board. One would certainly be a follower of Jesus Christ and known for integrity, etc. Among those, you're always looking for those kinds of people. You would say, what do we want to look like in terms of no more than X percent of pastors, no more than X percent of business people, at least 20% board members of color, no more than 20% coming from ministry. Uh, You kind of say, what do we want our dream team to look like, broadly speaking? And then a third category is what kind of experience and expertise do we need on the board? And there may be 12 areas where you say we have to have at least someone on the board who's an expert in nonprofit 
law, nonprofit finances, marketing, facilities, theology, whatever you want. And then the board development committee is saying the next people we bring on the board have to meet these criteria. Now, every board member, every senior staff member, including the CEO, should be recommending people. And this committee is constantly vetting them, involving them in an advisory group or a task force, testing out their loyalty, testing out how well they work in a group setting, testing how well they prepare for the tasks that we give them. And then, of course, Ted, you'd go on, you'd say, well, you need to evaluate board members at the end of their first term before you reelect them. And you evaluate them on six or eight criteria that everybody agrees. These are our expectations. Then you have an annual affirmation statement, which says, even in the middle of your term, life changes. So we want you to say every year, all of us, same time, I can do this. I can do this. If I can't do these things during the year, I will take responsibility for resigning so you can find someone who can. Now, if you go through a few things like that, you're going to limit the influence of the CEO on putting his favorites on the board. No doubt. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. We, you were critical a moment ago of overly large board. You said something in, in that answer that I, I want to circle back to, which was, yeah, when you are a board member or when you're an executive, you have all these priorities of what you want to see on the board, the diversity, the expertise. And obviously, that's going to conflict or it's going to rub against size. So you have some of these organizations where, the, in some ways, the whole point of the organization is to be kind of an umbrella organization. And you've, you've been connected with umbrella organizations before. The diversity and the representation of the different camps is really important in governance and not just, not just in staff. So one of the solutions has been you have like a mammoth board and then you have kind of an executive committee that really makes kind of the, the chief decisions, specifically a National Association of Evangelicals. They're kind of a classic case in point humongous board that has all these different organizations represented on it. And then they have a much smaller kind of governing executive committee. And we were talking before we hit the record button, the Liberty University also has a fairly big board. And then all the reporting is that, you know, it's the executive committee that's been meeting with Falwell Jr. Sounds like you are not a big fan of executive committees. So how do you, how do we balance governance and representation or bringing that, that expertise into the mix? 
I'm okay with executive committees, uh, Ted, if they're used properly. I see them as like insurance. If a decision needs to be made in 24 hours and our board is scattered all over the country, even though we can do a conference call now, we need a couple hours to make a decision. So for 12 years, I served a board of 15 and we had an executive committee. And over 12 years, I think they met three or four times. The problem with a board, and I looked up Liberty's board, I think they have 33, and they have an executive committee of six, including the president. And the chairman looks to be someone who has very little knowledge of large organizations or higher education. So I'm imagining that the president is the biggest voice on the executive committee by far. He has too much information. So you get a second, first class, second class attitude. Hey, I'm not on the executive committee. Those guys make all the big decisions. I'm just second class. I go to meetings. It's good fellowship. I love to be around the other board members. It gets me out of my office and to a good meeting. I love students, walk around the campus, et cetera, et cetera. I've met higher ed trustees who, that's it. They love the fellowship. They don't do their homework. They don't study about governance or higher education. I'm not a big fan of big boards. If you can run General Motors, Ford, General Electric, and so forth with 12 or fewer board members, I'm thinking, yeah, you ought to be able to run a college with 15, maybe 17. That's kind of the sweet spot for me in terms of effectiveness. Well, they say, well, that's too small. Well, it's not too small. If the president has Blue Ribbon Advisory Council that meets on campus once a year, those are where you'd put the major donors who don't want to give the time, talent, and treasure to the university governing body. Then you say the board should have, let's say, four, five, six committees. Your policies allow board committees to have non-board members on them. So you bring more people into a finance committee where you ask really, really skilled people in finance to serve on a committee. Why is that not a problem? Because board committees speak to the board. They don't speak for the board. They're not making decisions for the board. They speak to the board. They do their homework. They recommend policies to the board. And the other thing that boards don't use nearly enough are task forces. Somebody wants to give us a building downtown. We think, obviously, we'd take a building. It's a five-story building. It's been there for a long time. And someone says, you know what? It's an old building. Let's pay one of our trustees to take to lunch a contractor, an environmentalist, a former city councilman, whatever. So they walk through a building, they have a long lunch, and one says, well, it's full of asbestos. Contractor says, well, new zoning laws would require us to put in an elevator. Another one says, well, the zoning laws would require so many parking places for the number of people in the building. We don't have space for that. So the task force says, we don't have anything at stake in this thing. But our advice really is, I wouldn't accept that as a gift. So task forces with expertise are really underutilized as advisors to the board on specific complex issues. 
So right now we're talking about boards a little bit broadly, but hoping in this instance you can speak from your personal experience. What are some blind spots that Christian boards often have? Not taking seriously the responsibility of the board. It's always, yeah, you know, especially if I'm on a board of 33, I don't have to do it. Someone else will do it. I don't know much about that. I don't have to learn about that. The other thing they do is they don't expect homework. So I've been in hundreds of board meetings where a thick notebook is FedExed out two weeks in advance. People read it when? They read it when they're on the plane going to the meeting. They're skimming it. Well, then they get to the meeting and guess what? They spend the first three hours listening to reports from the president and vice presidents on exactly what was mailed out. So within two board meetings, they say, you don't have to read that stuff. They're going to do PowerPoints on it. Anyway, they become dependent on the administration rather than owning their responsibility to be leaders. That's one of the blind spots. The other one is feeling that the CEO knows so much more than I do. What would we do without him? He spends half his time raising money and we need the money. Gosh, if we get rid of him, we're responsible for financial viability. (laughs) What are we going to do? They allow the CEO to get away with things that are bad governance. Or in this case, I think they were given warnings either months or years ago. And it doesn't seem like they found the way to put the right parameters around the president to prevent him from doing what a friend sent me uh, this who had read about it and had kids at this university. He said, money plus power plus sex plus unaccountability equals catastrophe. There is a blind spot. How do you hold a powerful man, the son of another powerful man, a guy who's built it three times bigger than it was, who's got close to 100,000 enrollees? Who are we to second guess him? Well, you are the board. And if you don't, nobody will. Well, let me ask you about that because, you know, when a, when a leader falls, you often hear people say, you know, you'd kind of see this coming because there's all these character defects on the surface. Certainly have that in spades right now. Just look on Twitter. You know, when you look at a number of ministry leaders who've fallen, you can see a number of works of the flesh, to use kind of the Galatians 5 phrase. You can see examples of jealousy or fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, things like that. So when you see that, it's not like massively surprising sometimes to see, you know, the other items on that list in Galatians 5, you know, the sexual immorality, the impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, orgies. But let's say you're a board, right? When does the board say, look, we saw jealousy, so we're going to (laughs) remove you and enter some sort of disciplinary thing because jealousy is one of these works of the flesh that indicates a bigger problem. Or, you know, we saw you get angry and so you're out. When does a board step in and say, nope, you are not fulfilling the qualifications of Christian leadership here? Some books published by ECFA with Dan Busby and John Pearson, they have a chapter on soul care of the CEO. Board's responsibility for soul care. That plays out in different ways. It might be that the board says in an annual evaluation summary, we want you to have an accountability group of at least three people, and we want them to 
help you ward off temptations. We want them to be a sounding board for you, wise counsel from a biblical worldview. That could be one way. I remember working with a board hiring, it was a seminary, hiring a new president. And they hired a theologian who had never raised money. And after a couple years, they just didn't feel like this person was getting it. We need you to be raising money. They put in the annual review, we want you to find a fundraising coach. You pick the person. We want you to work with that person and develop your strategy that fits you, fits your giftedness. Well, the next year I was sitting there in the evaluation, and it turns out that the president had one dinner at a national association with a fundraising expert. That was it. Uh huh. He was terminated. He was terminated. You know, there's a board that said, hey, this was so important. It wasn't that hard. There's a lot of good people out there. And you had dinner. You had one dinner, right? But it seems like the boards are much more, you know, I mean, I haven't been on that many boards, but I've I've been on a few. I'm much more likely to hear of a board saying, look, you're not that great at fundraising. Why don't you learn how to do fundraising? But I just don't see that it's all that common for a board to keep coming in and saying, tell me about your accountability group. How, how often are you meeting? What are you working through? You know, any, any of those kinds of things. I mean, it just, it seems like boards <laughs> do focus a little bit on how much money are you raising and not so much on how often are you getting angry? Usually a board would feel like if we appointed three people to be the CEO's accountability group, uh, it's probably not going to work really well. So you just do it and tell us you have Godly men or women who are willing to surround you with prayer and wise counsel regularly, and we will ask them whether or not they feel you are being sufficiently transparent with the areas you're struggling with. And if you find that you need professional counseling to deal with something, say anger, it's in the budget. We encourage you to do that because the jobs are so unrelenting pressure every day, so many things to do. So the board has to appreciate that this is a tough job. And how do we support spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally? How do we support our CEO so that God's best is what we get, not we see one thing who isn't really the person we think he or she is? It's delicate. People right now, boards right now today should be saying, how should we be dealing with our CEO? My gosh, we can't afford anything like this. And so another thing is they don't have any risk management plans. They don't anticipate anything like this. Who speaks for the board? Now, look at all the journalists who are probably calling up members of the board. And what they're getting is, I'm not an executive committee. I didn't know anything about this. Who did the president resign and then change his mind? Who did you get that letter of resignation? You've got 25 trustees in this current case who are saying, well, how come the board accepted his apology on that media disaster of a couple of weeks ago with our governor? What did you guys do? You know, we had time to prepare for this. It's good to know who is the spokesperson for the board and who should shut up, <laughs> who should not take take media calls, because now the story goes on for two months rather than two weeks. 
Yeah, the who speaks for the board, no doubt, is tricky. But I guess I wonder, is there ever a place or the board, obviously a, a healthy functioning board has, has one voice, right? Is there ever a time for a board member to voice disagreement with a board decision? This goes into some of the issues that we, that we talked about at the front of the story, where, we, where there was a board member who strongly disagreed with some actions being taken by the, you know, by the president, by, by Jerry Falwell Jr. He was pushed out by the executive committee. I wonder about that. Does a board member who strongly disagrees with leadership have a moral obligation to resign from the board, or should they stay and work for change? And to what degree should they? We can come back to that. To what degree should they shut up about it? Let's start with that question. Does a board who strongly disagrees have a moral obligation to resign, or can they stay? The short answer is yes, they should keep resignation as a potential. But I think, you know, Matthew 18 could guide a person, a single trustee, to say, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to talk to the chair first. He is our leader. If I get no response, then I may write a letter to the executive committee, which in this case seems to be the group running, the small group running things. But yes, keeping the option of leaving, I don't want to leave a board that isn't following our own beliefs, our own values. But I think they first ought to try to correct the dysfunction of the board before they leave. Now, not sure of the, the one that other than the, when you opened, I, I did hear that a, a well-known evangelical was on the executive committee and he left and know that person a little bit more by reputation. And I'm thinking he couldn't afford to be part of this, but I hope he tried to correct things first. I'm curious, Bob, if you can talk a little bit about how you see or what the concrete ways are that Liberty's board failed in this situation. And if you can go through some of the areas where you think that they might have picked a different course of action. Do you recall how many years he's been president? Since what, 2007, Ted? I don't have it up, but it would, it would have been around around there. It was, you know. More than, more than a dozen years. That's longer than the average tenure. And just reading what I read in the media over several years, I'm thinking, what in the world? You know, where's the board on that? Nonprofits are not supposed to endorse candidates, for example. Even though they might say, a pastor or a CEO might say, I, I'm doing this in my personal identity. It doesn't have anything to do with my institution. It's hard to get away from that when you're a, as prominent as Liberty. So to have candidates come into chapel, ah, you know, if I were a board member, I'd say, oh, I, gee, I don't know about that. And then to have my president endorse any candidate, I don't know about that. There were warnings, unless, as I mentioned earlier, most of that board loyalty was to a person, not to the mission. That's where we run into problem. And that's why you can't allow a CEO to have the major input, needs to have some input, but not the major input on who serves on the board. Going back to the question of when you're a board member who disagrees, we've talked about moral failure, but is there a difference between being a board member who senses some sort of underlying moral issue and a board member who 
just has a different sense of uh, an organization's call or a different sense of an organization's direction or even passions. So if you're a board member of a place like Liberty and you think, yeah, you know, I, let, I'd really like to see us double down on, you know, in-person learning and, and not just be building out all of the remote stuff. Or, you know, if you're, you know, at a, a place like Liberty and you're like, I, I'd like to see us maybe be a little bit less political or more political or, the, or, or this kind of thing. You know, things that are not morally egregious, but you are just thinking, I'd like to see this change. But you are, <laughs> you're one voice of many on a board. I guess, what's the role? What's the, what's the role of disagreement? Is there, should there be a strong iron sharpening iron or how important is it that the board be unified to what you would mean? All right. Well, the rest of the board really wants us to go this direction. I don't agree with that necessarily. So I'm going to go find another organization I might be more passionate about. Or would you say, I'm really passionate about what this organization could be if it were passionate about whatever, social justice or higher education? Or what, what's your counsel to, to governors, to board members in, the, in that regard? Well, I've seen presidents resign over a fundamental difference with the board. They tried to convince the board this is the way we should go. The board said no. They tried again. The board said no. And the president has to decide can I really serve this board and its definition of our mission and our priorities and our goals? Can I serve it when I've really lost my passion for it? They leave. So yes, I think a board member should leave. Now, again, how does a board member try to get the board to go in a direction that he or she wants? One is to say to the chairman, you know, I'd like to serve on the Academic Affairs Committee because my issues are mainly around our curriculum, our offerings, and so forth. So I, I want to get on that and that committee so I can talk to a smaller group and try to convince them, what? Convince them that we ought to study my idea and then we ought to recommend, you mentioned CT still has the board policies manual that I worked with the board on years and years ago. So if you had a board policies manual, I have an opportunity, every board member does, to recommend additions, corrections, deletions to the board policies manual. I want to get my idea up before the board in writing and see where it comes out. Now, if I lose... 80% of the board, I have to think about whether my idea really is going to work here. What I like, you mentioned unity. Boards have to have unity. They don't have to have unanimity. There are some denominations whose church boards require unanimous decisions. And in my experience, several of those board members will tell me privately, I go home feeling dirty. I agreed to two things I don't agree to, but I knew that if I didn't vote the way the majority is going, I'm going to be there all night. <laughs> yeah. I believe that you iron sharpens iron in the committee meeting, in the boardroom, but then when the decision is made, you're all obligated to go outside of the boardroom and explain, not that you voted against it, but to explain what the board did. That's unity without requiring unanimity. Bob, as we just wrap this conversation, I just wanted to ask you one more question, which is what would you advise Christian board members to particularly learn from the situation that we've seen? If there's one takeaway that you have for them. 
Well, I think doing what you two are doing today, I, I would call a board Zoom or conference call and say, you've all seen the reports. This is from the chairman, ideally. And I've attached three links to stories that I think are credible. Maybe I've heard a podcast from CT. We need to talk about how we prepare for this, how we prevent this, and how we do this in partnership with our CEO. And I can think of an instance where, where that happened, this was a couple years ago, where the CEO resisted it, said, I don't think we need any more policies. I don't think I need any more direction from the board on how I should lead or how I should behave. Well, that's a red flag, a real red flag. I hope that thousands of boards in the next few weeks will be using this as yet another, sadly, case study on what do you think they did wrong? And some of them might say, well, they got so big, there was no accountability because six people sat in a room, including the president, and the chairman was not a strong leader who could stand up against the president. So the president just ran over them. Maybe that was the case. We don't know. The board ought to have a very transparent, open discussion. What policies should we review and look at? Gee, we haven't done an annual evaluation, any thorough evaluation in three years. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should have an executive session at every board meeting for a while without the CEO or any staff members and just say, how are we doing with our president? What have we heard that we need an answer for before we leave town? And then we have another executive session where the chairman says, by the way, whatever you want to tell us confidentially in private executive session, here are two issues that came up in the first executive committee meeting. We'd like you to address them before we all leave town. Things like that. The solution may vary, but if any board goes on as usual, and they're all just frustrated and uncertain about what to do about the pandemic, so everybody's struggling right now and reaching, do we close? Do we merge? Do we need a new CEO? Do we need different board members? All of those are good questions, but also, how are we holding our CEO accountable so that we aren't surprised by a moral ethical issue. Let me ask you this. You have been around the block with a lot of different Christian organizations. Are you hopeful on that? Because we are extremely aware right now that the evangelical movement is a movement where on the plus side, it's full of strong, entrepreneurial, charismatic leaders. It has been ever since the Great Awakening, and it's been a movement highly characterized by highly charismatic leaders who are good at building things and build good at bringing people around them and getting them excited about a mission. It is also on the negative side, a movement that is highly driven by charismatic leaders who are builders and who have kind of this outsized personality and draw people around them, get them excited about that vision. It has not necessarily been a movement that has been awesome on accountability, either either theological, financial, moral. Well, this is not our first rodeo in terms of talking about a major institution having a, a moral crisis that even the secular world looks at and says, don't want any part of that. That is some pretty disgusting stuff. I'm curious, as you say, you know, 
boards need to look at this and have a little more accountability and, and really wrestle with some of these questions about what they're not doing and what they're not holding people accountable. I mean, are you hopeful that there is that hunger and that we will, that we can and will see evangelical institutions be more serious about governance and, and accountability? Boy, I'm an optimist. Uh, <laughs> That's good. But I've done this since uh, 1985. Boy, I, I, to, to say I'm hopeful for the whole community, I guess, would be an exaggeration. When this racial issues and equality issues came up, I'm thinking, where are our leaders? We should be leading on a worldview that God created us in his image, every single one, and he loves us unconditionally. I don't think many in the world understand that that's where we're coming from. But if we say that's where we're coming from, then we have to show what we've done within that worldview. I don't know. We don't have we don't have a national leader in higher ed for a while. Ted Hesburgh was the moral voice. I was on a board of a national organization, and they just looked up to him. They looked up to Billy Graham in many respects. Walter Kim, I really like what I've seen. I don't know Walter, but I think Walter, if his board gave him permission to take a few risks and be a spokesperson to say, this is not this latest issue this week. This is not what we stand for. This is not representative of Christ followers. And urge the board to do the right thing down there. I've seen a letter from their general counsel on behalf of the executive committee that says, well, the president apologized to us and we think he was sincere. That doesn't cut it. The chair of the board is 50% of the solution or more. We need to prepare and nurture and put strong leaders at the head of our boards, which often does not happen. Often it's the nice guy, everybody loves him, or it's the woman who gave half a million last year. She wants to stay as chairman. (laughs) We don't want to risk that. Rather than who on the board are gifted by spiritual gifts, natural gifts, personality, and experience who are gifted to manage a group of strong people who meet only three or four times a year. Who can do that? We need to get up, we need to have two or three of those on the bench on our board. But most boards, if the chairman says, that's enough for me, I, I think I've gone far enough, they look around, they don't have anybody who wants that job. You may spend three times the number of hours being chair. So I'm urging people to look for recently retired people. The CEOs of other ministries cannot go public because it'll offend 20, 30% of their donor base. So they're silent. We need people who maybe recently headed national organizations. They have more time. They have more freedom, less to lose, and they definitely have seen enough to have some some good opinions. I'm hoping this and your coverage of Liberty really helps Christian colleges and universities, even though Liberty is not a member of the Council for Christian Universities. I hope that chairmen around the country of universities, but also of a lot of other ministries, say, what does my silence say about this? I can't be silent. I need wisdom. Let's all pray that 
some of those step up and lead more and more boards and ministries to do the God-honoring thing. That's my prayer. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for sharing your insight and wisdom in this conversation. For those of you who have experience in these types of situations, of course, we'd be interested in hearing from you. You can send us an email. We are at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. Or you can also reach out to us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. All right. So now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, where we get to hear from everyone here about something that's brought them joy recently. Go ahead, Ted. Well, Morgan, this is Precious Moments. I've already shared about my new puppy, who it continues to bring me joy. But this is also often the segment of the show where I talk about our new board game that has brought me joy. And on this one, I will mention the game Planet. It's a game where you have each player, up to four players, has a planet that they're building. They're putting these hexagon magnets on different sides of your planet, trying to match up the sides, kind of in a dominoes style. But it is a great family game because, you know, even if you don't have people in your family who are that passionate about, you know, the competitive aspect of games, like, you know, especially like younger kids, who doesn't love putting magnets on a planet and kind of creating a planet with big deserts and oceans? So you got that kind of building aspect of things, as well as kind of the, ooh, how can I maximize my points? Uh, who has the largest ocean connected to a, a polar area? So Planet, pretty cheap, pretty fun. We played it as a family this week and, and had had a great time. It's also a game that I am terrible at. I I cannot get out of the basement on this. I just can't quite think through the strategy of if I build a big desert now, it's going to pay off in, in 10 turns. So that's my thing that has brought me joy, Planet. I'm supposed to mention my social media. It's Ted Olson with an E. Morgan, what's bringing you joy? I would say a number of little things, but one of them I mentioned to you yesterday. My goal this summer, kind of, I guess, every summer since I did a triathlon is to swim a mile on the lake. And I did that yes. yesterday morning. Congratulations. And That's huge. Thank you. I think I was pretty surprised, actually. That was like my third time swimming. Like swimming, swimming this summer. I mean, I've like tread water and stuff, but I like. And 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 just to be clear, was this in Lake Michigan? Where was it? Yeah, yeah. Lake Michigan. That's, that's, that's impressive because Lake Michigan is not terribly warm. It is much harder to swim while in that cold water than it was when you know, growing up in Hawaii. I was like, yeah, I could swim this far, and then I came out here to the Midwest and jumped in some of the water. I'm like, that is cold and harder to swim in. Salt water, fresh not water wrong, matters too. But it's a lot warmer in july than, or august i guess than any other time um and probably right now it's the warmest it'll be and it probably will never be as warm as it is this week which is the other reason why i made myself do it yesterday because i was gonna only go to swim a half mile and then i was like i'm here and i think i can avoid getting caught by whomever would try to get me out of the lake since it's not officially open right now and thankfully no one interrupted my situation so wonderful congratulations thank you people can find me on twitter i'm at m-e-p-a-y-n-l bob over to you. Oh, I think it'll be sort of foundational to see my wife after going through months of cancer, to see her through with her treatments, chemo, and to see her bouncing back with her great smile and even offering this morning to take a walk, which she hasn't been able to do for a couple months. That brings me joy. And then I'm looking out at the front and in any minute, car will pull up that has our adult Sunday school class leaders, a couple, wonderful couple, we're going to lunch together, and I know they will fill me with great joy. Oh, that is great. That is wonderful. Where can people find you? Do you have a social media presence or a place where they can see your work? 
I'm up in the mountains in Sholo, Arizona. If you want to come by, give me a call at 623-692-7611. And I would be glad if it's on governance. I've got several hundred documents. And I guess I'll open myself up to say, if you text me with a question or a topic, I'll try to give you something that's helpful. (laughs) Well, thank you, Bob. That is a great offer. I appreciate you extending that to our listeners. That is this for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Boomi Ashola. Again, if you want to send us feedback because you've been on a board, you have thoughts about boards, you are connected to Liberty, please do so. You can send us an email at podcasts with an S at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcast as well. And this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, though, is the best place to rate and review the show. Thank you, everyone, for doing so. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.